The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome everybody to Squawkbox. We are live from the Conservative Party conference in Birmingham. I'm Jeff Cutmore. Arabile is here with me getting the feeling of the mood here from Conservative Party members. And of course, we've got Steve and Karen in our London headquarters bringing you all the other financial news and stories this morning. So let's talk about our headline news here from the Conservative Party conference in Birmingham. The UK Finance Minister Kwasi Kwarteng reportedly bringing forward the date now for his medium-term fiscal plan after already U-turning on a promise to abolish the top tax rate, a decision he says was taken with humility and contrition. Uh, in the markets, uh, Asian indices picking up the baton from the US, accelerating, uh, accelerating the global rally as bond yields just ease off a tad, whilst the Dow looks to build on its 760-point rally. Plus, Ukrainian forces continue to push through Russian defences in the south of the country and the eastern portion of that country, seizing back more territory that uh, was illegally annexed by Moscow. Meanwhile, credit default swaps for Credit Suisse continue to hit fresh highs as the Swiss lender struggles to calm market jitters over its financial health. UK Finance Minister Kwasi Kwarteng will bring forward the publication of the government's medium-term fiscal plan to later this month. This according to multiple reports now, also something that the Chancellor hinted on himself in his speech. The move will also include publication of the Office for Budget Responsibilities Assessment. For those outside the UK, ultimately this is the fiscal regulator here in the UK. Now, despite Kwarteng's previous insistence that the plans would not be ready until November 23rd, the reported move would mark the second climb down by the government in as many days after, of course, Conservative rebellion led to a last-minute U-turn on scrapping the top rate of income tax from 45 down to 40%. Well, the Chancellor acknowledged the mini-budget given 10 days ago had negatively impacted the markets. I know the plan put forward only 10 year, uh, days ago has caused a little turbulence. I get it. I get it. Uh, we are listening. We will forge a new economic deal for Britain, backed by an ironclad commitment to fiscal discipline. The Bank of England's emergency bond buying intervention has so far been far below daily limits. The central bank says it bought just over £3.6 billion worth of gilts in the first four days of this 13-day programme. The trend indicates that spending won't hit the full potential of £65 billion. Uh, obviously, we've seen uh, something of a relief rally and a rebound in the pound sterling. Speaking on Monday, of course, Kwarteng had repeated a commitment to fiscal discipline. Growing our economy should be our central and guiding mission. 
With this plan, we are aiming for 2.5% annual trend growth. We've done it before, and we can do it again. Our entire approach will be underpinned by a strong institutional framework which enhances growth in our country, including our independent Bank of England and Office for Budget Responsibility. We will have a strong fiscal anchor with debt falling as a percentage, a proportion of GDP over the medium term. So we've pretty much given you the bare facts of the story. Maybe since we are here at the party conference uh, and I have Arabile with me who will give us uh, uh, a little bit more on the people that he's been speaking to. Let me just give you a little bit of colour and context, I think, around Kwasi Kwarteng's speech. Um, I think as you'll read in a lot of the newspapers here in the UK this morning, even though the, um, the front two rows were enthusiastic, they were putting on the smiles for the camera, and they were clapping. I think arguably there were quite a lot of people in that room who were rather stony-faced, who were rather upset with the way that this whole issue has been handled. Was the Chancellor contrite? I'm not sure contrition is the right word. He did use the, uh, the phrase, it's been a tough day, and he talked about uh, acknowledging the turbulence, of course, that had been generated on international markets by the unfunded budget. But it wasn't contrition as such. And as we understand it, the speech previously had talked about staying the course. You know, conservatives love to think that they are putting their shoulder uh, to the wheel and they are getting on with delivering growth. And there was an underlying message about the need to deliver growth in this budget. But of course, there have been over the last few days here the issue of the embarrassing climb down, both on the uh, 45% rate and on the fact that they're now going to have to push forward the uh, uh, fiscal arrangements ultimately to try and uh, explain to the markets exactly how they're going to fund the unaccounted for uh, £45 billion. Pounds. Um, what there wasn't in this speech, and I think you'll uh, read a lot about this over the course of the morning, uh, there wasn't a great deal about the direction that the economy is travelling in and what ultimately the higher interest rates are going to mean for demand and growth. And there wasn't a whole lot about how, in fact, the Conservative Party and the Chancellor intends to stay within the mini-budget already laid out. And I know there's a lot of speculation here that perhaps we're going to have to look back to the austerity days of, of George Osborne and that uh, 2010 uh, government effectively to get a good handle on what is ultimately needed here from the Chancellor. But, but Karen, Steve, um, overall having attended a few of these and I know Steve you've done quite a few of them up here as well I wouldn't say the mood across the whole event has been downbeat or uh, gloomy um, I would say that generally there is uh, a little buzz in the halls people are excited about the idea of getting on with a new government and a new plan and unfolding uh, perhaps some new ambitions on policy. But everybody here understands how humiliating this has been over the last 10 days and exactly how the markets have brought discipline to this government's intentions. Karen. Um, I I'll pick up very briefly there, Jeff. I know Karen's got something to say. Well, look, this is, I mean, humiliating, absolutely. And, and look, what Kwasi Kwarteng said there is that we have a 
ironclad commitment to fiscal discipline. But they've gone ahead with the soundbite announcements, including the, the 45% uh, change to 40% for those higher earners as well, thinking that people wouldn't notice it was only another two billion on the side. So they've lost enormous political capital there. The party of fiscal discipline clearly doesn't have a median plan yet, otherwise we'd have seen it. They clearly don't have independent uh, analysis from the Office of Budget Responsibility, otherwise we would have seen it. So announcing the sound bites and the plan without actually working out if there really was any fiscal discipline in there has cost this country billions. It's cost the mortgage industry billions. It's cost the pension industry billions. It's cost householders billions as well. It's cost the Bank of England, which has to transfer the losses on its pension stock, billions in the lost guilt. It's cost the government in terms of the money which it has to use for financing the sovereign debt, billions as well. It's cost the stock market holders billions because of the decline we've seen because of the concerns about the UK economy. What part of this is ironclad fiscal discipline. It has been probably one of the biggest faux pas. Uh, and in terms of the government getting on with business, this is a 12-year-old government as well. A 12-year-old government that has had its fourth incarnation of a prime minister in six years as well. It's had its third Charles de Exchequer in a matter of months as well. I mean, for the Tory party itself, no wonder only the, the real aficionados in the front two roads got all excited about it as well. What about the rest of the country that has cost every single one of us billions? It's shambolic, isn't it, Jeff? Oh, I don't disagree with anything you've said, Steve. I mean, you've basically just reinforced the, the points that I was making there. Um, look, governments uh, of all persuasions have U-turned in the past. Look, 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 let me just remind you, most recently, um, I think, uh, as we saw under Boris, um, Gavin Williamson U-turned on uh, education, the, the whole issue of whether algorithms were going to be used for A-levels as we were coming through the pandemic. There was a a U-turn on uh, school meals, uh, you remember, as, a, as a, a leading footballer basically took on the government and won. We had a, a U-turn over track and trace, whether it was going to be centralised or not. The difference, of course, in all of those various U-turns is they didn't have the impact on the financial markets that you're describing here, Steve. And I think this question of whether you can trust the economy in the hands of the Conservatives is front and centre at this stage because they've always claimed that they were the party in this country that was keen on cutting taxes, that would put more money in your pocket and believed in fiscal discipline. And I think we had a, a little bit of a, a lesson in that under the George Osborne uh, Cameron government, but perhaps uh, nothing like a lot of people really hoped. But let, let's just understand completely why we're putting the boot into the Conservative Party at the moment. But, but in the broader context, we mustn't lose sight of the fact that we are ultimately under, unwinding over a decade of very easy monetary conditions. And this is a backdrop upon which it is very difficult, I think, for any government to step in and say what it wants to do at this point is wind back tax cuts because the pandemic and the, the, the challenges that we've seen uh, around higher oil prices and inflation, 
mean ultimately that there is increasing pressure on both um, individual budgets and business budgets and consequently on government budgets and that's why it seemed so tone deaf to come out so quickly 10 days ago with a budget that was very focused on winding back tax cuts rather than focusing on perhaps um, how to achieve uh, reduced spending in some areas whilst at the same time helping offset the impact of higher inflation. So we know that the international backdrop is very difficult excess hubris for any Conservative government then to come in and within a few days start talking about how it was going to hand money back to uh, businesses and individuals through um, tax action, Karen. Jeff, I almost wonder whether the Chancellor needs to break out some funky dance moves here because, of course, you remember Theresa May with the robot dance and dancing queen to ABBA over the years, and that was humiliating in itself, but this is a a new version. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But at least it was distracting at this point. But it comes back to just how damaging this has been as we talk about a policy reversal. I mean, the Australians were talking about it today, about the sort of messaging and the warning signals it sent to them even in terms of fiscal discipline. I mean, that is a long way away. We're talking about the reaction across Europe and across the United States, but all the way to Australia today. If you look at the trade on the market, it feels as though there is a slight sense of calm. Sterling has regrouped. We've seen some of the gilts move south again, but it doesn't feel as though we're out of the woods. In October now, looks like a high stakes game for the market. We're waiting down till the, the 14th of October when the Bank of England may stop that intervention in the market. We're waiting out for the new um, numbers to be crunched and the explanations here from the Chancellor. And then later on the month, we're expecting to see quantitative tightening uh, resumed by the central bank. So, uh, Jeff, in terms of what's ahead, it doesn't feel as though we've tackled all the challenges because we've only stripped out that high net income tax policy, which is worth, what, two to three billion out of that 45 billion pound package. So could there be more to come in terms of market turbulence, as the Chancellor has put it? Uh, definitely. I think it's, it's, it's almost um, impossible to imagine that, um, and I won't talk about specifically the Bank of England here. I know Steve's going to discuss um, more commentary out of the Fed, and I think that's the right place to look here because, look, the UK has just un- unfortunately turned itself into a bit of a poster child for economic illiteracy, which is something I think this country never would want to do, and this government any Conservative government would not want to be held in that light. But unfortunately, it has just happened. And I'm not surprised that the Australians and other others around the world now are taking note and they are going to act accordingly here. But what you've ultimately got, haven't you, is this huge sucking noise as liquidity is being pulled out of all markets in the global economy by the actions of the Federal Reserve, increasing interest rates and ultimately um, sort of cajoling and forcing other central banks around the world to also react to raise interest rates to defend currencies partly, but namely to raise interest rates to tackle inflationary pressures here. And you, you know that there is this massive ache in the markets at the moment for some sign of a pivot, just some evidence that there may be a weakening of the sinews of these uh, Federal Reserve governors to actually take a pause on this interest rate hiking cycle at the moment. But unfortunately, that doesn't 
fit in with the narrative. So I think, Karen, there is going to be more market turbulence as long as we see central banks continue to engage in interest rate hikes from here on in. And it's incumbent then on all governments uh, where this is taking place to look very closely to how they manage their own budgets here. Because what have we had? You know, just to refer back to this, if you leave global interest rates near zero for well over a decade, people are going to take chances. Businesses are going to take chances. And we've had an awful lot of that. And if you want a, a very clear sign of the impact it's having on perhaps the most risky of financial adventurism, just look at the SPAC market. How many of those are still standing? Uh, I, I think we've had um, uh, ooh, uh, tens of SPACs now ultimately folded as evidence, really, that there is no business opportunity in this environment worth pursuing at these interest rates, given the risks of further volatility. I'll just wrap it up for a moment here. We're obviously going to have a lot more coverage uh, for you from the Conservative Party conference throughout the morning, but we'll catch up with Arabile on the ground in about uh, 15 minutes' time and find out who he's been talking to here and what they've had to say about what their chancellor's been up to. Steve? Yeah, and just for our viewers who are looking uh, from the United States, Jeff isn't in Alabama. He is in the Midlands of United Kingdom, uh, different Birmingham. Uh, and I'll just make one more comment. If everyone wants to see that the infighting is still ongoing uh, in the Conservative Party, have a look at the comments from the MP for Mid-Bedfordshire. She's one of the more colourful characters in the Conservative Party. Very interesting comments from uh, the former Culture Secretary, Nadine Doris, uh, about what Liz Truss should do. Uh, given the... Oh, there you are. Wow, you've got it, team. Oh, my God, it's like we're on one page of ESP. Can I read it a little bit? Oh, go on then. She's basically said, if Liz wants a whole new mandate, she's talking about the Prime Minister, of course, she must take to the country. I mean, I'm not selling Nadine, Nadine Doris how to do her job, but the Tories have got a 33-point deficit over Labour at the moment, and a Conservative MP is telling Liz Truss to go to the country. That's, that's a little bit of infighting for you, isn't it? Right. But is she wrong in terms of going to, to rally the population? You do that tour of uh, um, various parts of the country to try and shore up support. It's not about the capital necessarily. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, it depends what you mean. If, 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 if she wants to win the election, then I wouldn't suggest going to the country when you are absolutely at the biggest trough the Tories have been at post-war, probably, in terms of deficit to Labour Party. wouldn't suggest. I mean, again, I'm no political pollster. I'm not a spad. I have watched a little bit of politics over the last 40 years, I must be honest. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe Nadine Doris knows something I don't know about voting intentions. What about the wall, the, the so-called wall that has to be defended across the country, and up north in particular? How does um, that get tackled now in the next two years? I don't know. I wish I had a Game of Thrones phrase for you about the Northern Wall, whatever it is, but I, I think it's been breached. I think it's fair to say that they're in a bit of trouble on the wall. I, I, yeah. What was it, Wakefield? Did we see the Wakefield or, or, or the Tiverton and Honiton results? I think that for me was, uh, that was the wall being breached and, and the latter was of course in the Southwest. Brilliant. Okay, um, let's move on. Uh, New York Fed President John Williams has indicated the central bank will stick to its hiking path. Williams told an audience in Phoenix that's Arizona, uh, that he is seeing the first signs that rate hikes are successfully cooling inflation, but the Fed's job is still far from done. Mr. Williams warned that failure to tackle persistently high inflation would undermine the U.S. economy's ability to perform at its fullest potential. My goodness me, we, we, we really did see stunning oscillation in the markets over the last 48 hours. 
big rally, Karen. Yeah, I'm just going to let the, the audience into a little secret. They may think you've had a lot of caffeine today. The excitement around the set is not the caffeine. It's the jolts numbers coming out later on that there you're are, most well, excited no, I, about. I can barely contain myself. I had an amazing <laughs> look at the ISM data. Yes, they've got jolts today and payroll on Friday. I, I'm in data heaven. Karen. Exactly. And what we've got on the market, a pop, a very strong rally, 2.6 on the Dow. So certainly picking up from this bear market territory uh, that we've um, wandered into, the market uh, really suffering at the back end of September in particular and that final uh, trading month in the quarter. But as we started out the trading month now, we've got a little bit of green on the boards. Best trading day since uh, late June. So the market uh, getting that pop after that 8.8% drop in September. The S&P is stronger too. And you can see the Nasdaq a little bit behind when it comes to the percentage performance, but still solid above 2.2%. In terms of what we've got elsewhere, take a look at treasuries. The markets here have been closely eyeing gilts. Normally it's the other way around, but we have traveled it to 3.61%, 3.83 on the five year and just over 4% still on the two year. The market will be digesting that data very, very closely because don't forget there's this loop now when we've got a very strong labor market. There are concerns about that pushing up wages, spilling out into consumption patterns and again driving up some of that demand-driven inflation. And that's what central banks are keen to take out of the system. Supply side, they're struggling to do anything about, but the demand side, that's where they're trying to tackle some of those pressures, as you've seen, a broadening out in price pressure. So a lot to, in the data this week. Let's take a look at the dollar. The uh, strength coming back into sterling and euro this morning we've climbed as you can see back up to the 113 a quarter mark on sterling trade as a little bit more stability has returned to the trade on the back of all of that messaging from the chancellor and the prime minister here in the uk euro also perched firm up a tenth of a percent on the markets this morning dolly yuan this is getting interesting we had some fascinating uh, remarks today and uh, in the data of course uh, this was uh, around japan showing us that cpi uh, inflation has climbed to 2.8 in september don't forget this is the fourth straight month that we've been above that two percent target so will we get a change of language from the bank of japan could this net be the next central bank that we're watching very very closely at this stage and you can see uh dollar yuan rates are closely watched in the chinese market at this point dollar yen is what the market is closely going to be eyeing in that region as we take a look at the asian currencies and if you take a look at what we've got on uh, dollar swissy we are just a little bit weaker so that is telling you swissy is climbing at this stage i want to take you to what we've got across elsewhere <clears throat> brent and wti both gaining all counting down to the opec plus meeting to see whether a million barrels of oil a day is stripped out of the market that is uh, going to be a real driver for the action already from here the spot gold prices uh, 16.98 is what we've got on the markets let's take you to asia <clears throat> we are ex china ex hong kong today those two markets not trading but we are following very closely behind wall street I mentioned the Japanese market on the back of the CPI, 2.8% higher. The other big market to watch is Australia today. We've had 25 basis points from the RBA. It is not the 50 basis points the market was setting up for, but don't forget we're at 2.6%. It is the sixth straight rise that we've had in a row since May. So the market popping saying, are we done with the jumbo size rate hikes? For now, uh, markets asked, "Are we done a few times?" And it's it's very exciting markets, though. And, and you know, we're very privileged commentators at this time, having a look at it. Thanks, Karen. Uh, right. Okay. Well, coming up on the show, Elon Musk. Um, uh, very interesting intervention. He's weighed in on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, sparking uh, the eye of the man you can see on the screen, Mr. Zelensky. We'll have some more on this next, and the podcast. Well, for more on Jeff's excellent coverage of the UK's Conservative Party. 
where it goes from here, what it means for the economy, are there global implications? It's all on the Squawk Box podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. We are looking for some comments. Um, This is just coming through from the German finance minister, uh, Linda, saying that uh, the joint EU debt does not help us to strengthen competition in the long run. So uh, just pushing back about joint EU debt. Is it it designed to help competition? I think think he's extrapolated. You you want competition for Europe on the one side and for Germany, uh, and you want, from some quarters... EU debt consolidated on the other as well. And he's saying, well, you're not going to get this if you do that. So he's, is is the word conflagrating? I think that is the word. So the French line is that it does increase competitiveness, I I believe, because you get a stronger European player that is a a challenger to, say, the Chinese or challenger to the Americans or elsewhere. But in this particular case, you've got the Germans saying joint debt. So there's a massive assumption in there, if that is what they say. So more debt plus a pan-European backstop equals a more competitive Europe. Right. Okay. Uh, Ukrainian military forces have continued their advance through key Russian defences in the east and south of the country, claiming back more territory within the regions illegally annexed by Russia. It marks the latest setback for Russia's military forces after losing a major logistics hub at Lyman in the Donetsk region over the weekend. Um, Elon Musk has waded into the Ukraine conflict, tweeting out his vision, yes, his vision, for a prospective peace plan, which includes UN-supervised referenda in the annexed regions. Uh, Crimea formally joining Russia and Ukraine, agreeing to remain neutral. Uh, Yep, Uh, Musk's tweets prompted a response from Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, and in fact, a load of others as well, the Finnish president, I think Carl Bildt was in on it, loads of people, who asked, uh, Zelensky asked his followers, which side of Tesla's CEO the public prefer, the one who backs Russia or the one backing Ukraine? Um, Yeah, Uh, Hadley, we should be talking about Ukraine from the Warsaw Security Forum where transatlantic defence officials and security experts are meeting. It's a long tease. Just hi, Hadley. Um, Right. Okay. let me just get to the point here. We should be talking about (laughs) Ukraine and Russia. But once again, we've got the attention seeker that is Elon Musk put himself right in the middle of it as well. I know he's doing a great job with the Starlink satellite. No one can deny that. But but what was the point of him tweeting a poll to people who are fighting for their existence? You got to wonder about that, Steve. And as you say, we're talking about attention seekers. The word narcissist comes to mind. But listen, what we're talking about today here at the Warsaw Security Forum is not just security in and of itself. We're also talking about unity. And there are questions, as you very well know, about uh, the potential for a fractured unity amongst NATO allies as a direct result of their failure, at least so far, to find some kind of unified response to the fact that they've got to wean themselves off of Russian energy. We've seen this over the last several days 
following the Chancellor of Germany's announcement of a 200 billion euro uh, energy fund that would essentially uh, require debt, and one which Mario Draghi even said, you know, listen, when we are at a time when we're supposed to be um, taking on a unified threat and have a common goal in doing so, it doesn't help when one country is using its ability to uh, work within its own budget uh, to do this at the expense of others. You know, this is something that's already raised the hackles of everybody from Hungary to Italy to Lithuania, and we're definitely going to be getting into that a little later on throughout the day, talking about energy security. But in terms of security in and of itself, it's a question not just of unity, but also of leadership. In the last 24 hours, you may have noticed uh, U.S. President Joe Biden uh, announcing to Al Sharpton that he is going to run uh, in the next election in 2024. This is a man who is 79 years old. This is a question of what the future is going to look like and what NATO allies can expect, certainly from Washington. One question that I'll be raising a little later in the program uh, with General David Petraeus, the former director of the CIA, is one of not just leadership, but also in terms of security. There's been a report out of CNN over the last 24 hours suggesting that Ukraine will actually be willing to have U.S. oversight of Russian targets in exchange for a missile system, one that they say that they need uh, to, to continue the fight, to continue their pressure on the Russians. They say they've made a lot of progress, obviously, in the last several weeks, and they want to continue to do that. In order to do that, they need these advanced, advanced weapon systems. Now, Poland, of course, a country that shares a 200-plus kilometer border with Russia, was the very first country to support the Ukrainians. They've continued to do so both economically as well as security-wise in terms of weapons. But even they say there are worries about getting more weapons uh, to the Ukrainians at this point, because we're getting to a situation where many of these NATO allies are going to struggle to get those weapons to the Ukrainians as a direct result of, listen, they want to help Ukraine, but at the same time, they don't want to sacrifice their own security. And Poland specifically, you know, on the Eastern Front, directly uh, sitting there staring down the Kremlin, if you will, understand that when it comes to their own security, when it comes to the Eastern flank, um, things have moved. The center of gravity, if you will, of NATO has moved to this part of the world. So whereas several years ago, when we'd go to these NATO summits, guys, and sit on the sidelines and the only folks that would really spend time talking to us were the Eastern European leaders because they definitely felt NATO needed to work for them. Now it's more of a situation where I told you so. And Western leaders understand that and they are giving that voice to those sitting in this part of the world. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.